The United States Border Patrol has exciting and rewarding career opportunities with the nation's largest law enforcement organization. Earn great pay with outstanding federal benefits and up to $20,000 in recruitment incentives. Learn more online at cbp.gov slash careers slash USBP. This is the American Veteran Show. Proud to finally say these two words. Welcome home. Dedicated to those who have worn the uniform. Tremendous national asset. Dedicated to our active duty men and women. They came not as conquerors, but as liberators. Dedicated to presenting issues, topics, and interviews highlighting their commitment to our country. I want to thank the courageous men and women who've served their country in uniform. Less than 1% of the population of our country chooses to serve our country in the military. The other 99% of us, we owe them. Online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephan Tubbs. Welcome to the American Veteran Show for this Sunday. Thank you so much for your time, and we've got a jam-packed show ahead. We will start with the signing just last week of the PACT Act, of course, dealing with burn pits, toxic exposure to our men and women who fought in Iraq and Afghanistan. Of course, there may be some good news for our Vietnam veterans who for decades have been dealing with the ramifications of being exposed to Agent Orange. We also, later on in the program, in fact, as we wrap up, pay respects to an amazing American. You may have read him, and there's a pretty good chance you've heard his voice. David McCullough, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author, historian. He passed a week ago today. We'll have a tribute to him as we wrap up. We couldn't do programs like this without our presenting sponsor, attorney John Boson and his great staff at Boson Law. You can find out more online anytime. It's B-O-E-S-E-N, BosonLaw.com. Fighting on behalf of veterans every single day. Their number, 303-999-9999. Just a few days ago in Washington. This is the most significant law our nation has ever passed to help millions of veterans who are exposed to toxic substances during their military services. You know, Secretary McDonough can tell you, I was going to get this done come hell or high water. This was something, the the first thing being when I, (laughs) a lot of staff knows, that's true. It's part of my agenda that I announced in the State of the Union address. I announced four things that all Americans could agree on. One was beating the, opioid, beating the opioid epidemic. Two was tackling the mental health crisis we face as a nation as a consequence of the pandemic. Three was ending cancer as we know it, which we're going to do and come hell or high water again. And three, supporting our veterans. We will forgive President Biden for doing the third item twice, but that pales in comparison to what was signed. This from, again, the White House and a ceremony just a few days ago. President Biden signing into law today the Honoring Our PACT Act, a significant expansion of benefits and services for toxic burn pit exposed U.S. veterans. The president uh, just gave some remarks. Now he's getting ready to formally sign that bill into law. This is a bill that garnered wide bipartisan support. It will expand VA benefits eligibility to more than 3.5 million veterans. ABC News' Jay O'Brien and ABC News senior Pentagon reporter Louis Martinez are joining me now with more on this. Louis, what changes can veterans expect now that this law is passed, both short-term and long-term? 
Diane, in the short term, you can, will be able to apply for these benefits. No longer will the burden of proof be upon you to prove that you were exp suffered exposure and you suffered illnesses as a result of that exposure. Uh, the presumption will be there for up to 23 illnesses. You heard the president talk about uh, respiratory illnesses, some types of cancer. Um, the uh, VA will accept your claim now and will process those claims, and you will be eligible uh, for benefits. Benefits not only to the individual, but also to survivors and families. You heard the president talk about a $2,000 monthly stipend that will be provided to them, access to additional uh, loans, um, access to uh, scholarships. It's all there in this new bill. It's all uh, information that uh, has been developing over the last 20 years or so, the exposure to burn pits that service members in Iraq and Afghanistan um, had suffered these unexplained illnesses as a result of what they believed may have been burn pits. But it took a long time for the Veterans Administration uh, to accept that because, again, the burden of proof had been on the individual. That's no longer the case. So you're going to see that in the short term. Uh, there's going to be a one-year eligibility for enrollment program uh, for uh, service members who did not fight in Iraq and Afghanistan because um, this pact, this promise to address comprehensive toxins, also not, is not only for service members from Iraq and Afghanistan, but it also stretches back to the Vietnam War. You heard the president talk about how what he had done when he was a senator to put through legislation for, uh, to address the issue of uh, orange um, you know, the toxic uh, substance that was used uh, during Vietnam. Uh, so what you're seeing now is um, a bipartisan support, strong bipartisan support in passing this legislation to address these concerns. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting is that you saw the president address John Stewart, the uh, f famous comedian and actor who had been the strongest proponent for this legislation. You heard the president say to him, we owe you big uh, because he had pushed Congress to push this forward. Um, and he got a very extended standing ovation from those gathered there at the White House this morning. Uh, but John Stewart, the face of this, just as he was the face for the exposures of toxic exposures at the 9-11 Ground Zero location. Um, so uh, that's why uh, this, this signing ceremony is taking place today. Uh, in large measure to Stewart's activism, he put a face um, as well as to all the other victims themselves who had suffered uh, from these illnesses. You heard there um, the president talking about Sergeant First Class Heath Robinson's family. He was a combat medic who in Iraq, uh, he came back suffered severe illnesses and ultimately died from the illnesses that he suffered while exposed to the burn pit. And you heard the president there talk about as well his own son, Bo Biden, who when he served with the Delaware National Guard in Iraq, uh, ultimately died from brain cancer that the president believes was due to his exposure to burn pits. Now, Jay, despite that strong bipartisan support that Louis referred to for this bill, it did fail in the Senate just a week before finally passing. What happened there and what finally got this across the finish line? Well, Diane, this was a bipartisan bill at its outset. It gets to the Senate, as you mentioned, it fails. Now, Senate Republicans said one of their reasoning for voting against it was because there was a budgetary provision in the bill that they did not like. They felt circumvented procedure. Democrats argued that the Republican opposition was actually because Republicans were angry about those one-time secret negotiations over the Inflation Reduction Act that involved Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin. The bill gets back on track, though, after weekends of protest. And Louis, these toxic burn pits, which is the sort of the more recent um, uh, problem attributed to some of these health uh, issues that veterans are dealing with, is really, as you explained, a way of sort of disposing of combat waste and so on. So is there an alternative now? Has that practice itself changed? 
Yeah, that is something that the Pentagon has been exploring. They've realized that there are health consequences as a result of that. I mean, it's, it's very obvious, right? You have a temporary military facility in a combat zone, and you don't expect that you're going to be there for an extended period of time. So when you're there temporarily, it's okay to create a burn pit to get rid of your waste. Uh, you're going to have a lot of waste because you're going to have thousands of troops in one general location. But at, over time, as those facilities end up becoming longer and longer term, as was the case both in Iraq and Afghanistan, you started seeing longer, lar larger exposures. So the question then become for the, comes for the Pentagon, how do you deal with that short-term need, because you are going to need to get rid of that waste somehow, versus over the long term, do you continue to use burn pits uh, over time, knowing that over time there could be potential exposures that could be a health risk to your service members. So that's one of the things that the Pentagon is looking at. They know that uh, there are environmental concerns. They know that there are health concerns. They're trying to figure out ways of how to address this in the future. Now, Jay, this is uh, one of a few areas where veterans have talked about, you know, facing issues dealing with the VA. How will this law help them in the short term and the long term? Well, as Louie mentioned earlier, one of the, the quickest provisions of this law is that veterans no longer have to prove that their illness, that their symptoms related to toxic exposure is directly tied to their service. The VA will now presume that going forward, and that's going to help open up some of the, the claims process here. But there is something in this bill that also scales up. The VA allows them to deal with this new massive amount of claims that they will receive. But veterans groups, as we've been saying, they are watching this warily because although they are extremely happy about the passage of this legislation, about it being signed into law, the onus is now on the VA. It's up to the VA to carry out this law to get these benefits to veterans in a timely fashion. And keep in mind, there are veterans, there are families of veterans, there are survivors of veterans who have passed away, family members who have been waiting on some kind of help as it relates to this for years, if not decades, so they don't want to wait any longer. And they're hoping the VA can expedite that. And the president mentioned this as well. His point in all of this is that you are, if you are a veteran, if you've had some kind of toxic exposure, get to the VA quickly, go to that website that the president mentioned, the VA's PACT Act website, and try to get in line somewhat quickly as the VA staffs up to try to meet this demand. That from ABC News. Thank goodness that the PACT Act is signed. And if you, by chance, are one of those veterans out there that may have been exposed, please get in touch with the VA as soon as you can. We will come back after this quick timeout, and we'll have a guest from earlier in the week on our regular program. He is what we call our nuke expert. Just last week, the 77th anniversary of the atomic bomb dropped on Nagasaki, Japan. Steve Kelly will join us next. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Now, back to the American Veteran Show. Three days after the Hiroshima bomb, despite all the destruction, Japan still hadn't surrendered. A second bomb was made ready, and Truman issued another warning. And that second bomb, of course, would be dropped on Nagasaki, Japan. Not the original target from our regular program just a few days ago on 710 KNUS. Our nuke expert, United States Navy veteran intelligence man, Stephen Kelly with a look at that fateful day and more on the nuclear program in the 40s. Niigata was the, the original target, but they came up to the, to the target. This is on the second mission. This is the one that delivered the Fat Man bomb. They came up to the target and found the target cloud-covered. So they couldn't bomb because by their, their uh, procedures, they were supposed to do visual bombing 
only. So the target was obscured, so they had to go to the secondary. The secondary was Nagasaki. The secondary, when they got close to it, they found that it was almost totally obscured by cloud. Uh, They only had a, a few seconds to make a decision to release the weapon or not because they were going to be running short on fuel. So they were over the city. They got a break in the clouds, and the bombardier was able to pick up uh, a reference point on the ground uh, and and then take over the aircraft from there uh, and release the weapon. I can't remember if I'd asked you if, if through your research and your knowledge and, and your career in the Navy and in intelligence – Have you heard the same thing that I have, and I would imagine that you have, and that would be, you know, you could still even 77 years later, probably 277 years later, you could probably have a decent debate with some folks that say it was the wrong decision. Others would say it was the right decision. But when I talk with World War II veterans, and I have, you know, for the past couple of decades, they all say basically the same thing. Yeah, it was horrible. But when we were getting our intelligence and preparing to invade mainland Japan, the casualties and and those that were killed, not only Japanese civilians, but, you know, allied forces as well. Have you heard that kind of thing that, look, it's bad, but it could be a lot worse if we don't do this? Actually, Entire books have been written debating this subject, yeah. uh, and there's a there was a school of thought that developed after the war. But this is important. It was well after the war had finished that the decision to drop the bomb was incorrect from a from the position of ending the war. There are authors who argue that the war could have been ended by other means, and uh, there were those at the time shortly after the decision had been made to actually use the weapon that were opposed to it. Uh, one of them, the scientist from Los Alamos that was deeply involved in it, which was Leo Szilard. And he was afraid at that time that using the nuclear weapon means that the whole world knows that it can be done and it would initiate an arms race uh, world globally. Now we know that Yes, many countries in the world today have nuclear weapons. But, of course, limiting that, uh, possibly a school of thought says that we haven't been involved in a nuclear war between any of these countries for 77 years because the results of the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were so horrendous that it's put a fear into people from that time on not to use nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Nuclear weapons over the last 77 years have been have become uh, they become almost they're a deterrence because you're afraid that the other guy is going to use their nuclear weapons on you. It's amazing that that kind of afraid the other guy's going I mean you could go back to earlier this year and Vladimir Putin is threatening west if you do this, you know, remember what we've got in in so many words. Our guest is Stephen Kelly. So on the 77th anniversary, let's pick up part two. We we were right at the point uh, in our first visit with you. We really were getting in depth with you about Los Alamos, which is, you know, all things considered, not too far from where we're, we're seated now. Kind of pick up where you left off. Kind of pick up and maybe go back a, a few steps sure. on this. I, I think for for your listeners, the a main uh, event that kind of triggered Everything that took place afterwards would have been 
taking place in Germany in 1938, and that's when it was discovered that the nucleus of the atom could be fissioned. It could break apart. In fact, the, uh, the, the people that discovered that named it fission because it was breaking apart of the nucleus. And that breaking apart of the nucleus would release the energy that held it together. This was accomplished in Germany, and a gentleman I just mentioned just a, a few moments ago, Leo Szilard, was an emigre from Hungary. He came to the United States to escape uh, the Jewish persecution that was going on in Europe. And in 1938, he, when he heard about the fissioning of, of the nucleus, he immediately could put two and two together. He was that good of a physicist. He knew that, right, if you can fission this, the nucleus, it's going to re- release particles, neutrons, that might go out, and they'll strike other neutrons, and that could send out more neutrons, and you could start what they call a chain reaction. Each each little level in that chain, re- chain reaction is going to release more energy. It happens almost instantaneously, and when you get to about 12 levels, you've released a huge amount of energy. And he thought, well, this energy is more than anyone has ever known before. It's it's tremendous. It's uh, It will create temperatures almost as hot as the temperatures on the sun. So he knew that the Germans were well along the road, as they even admitted, towards producing a weapon. That was the point of the German program. They were involved in producing a weapon from the get-go, from the very start of this. He realized that, and he knew that somebody had to be informed in the American government because he sensed that war was coming, we would be involved in it, and if America wasn't prepared, there was going to be some severe consequences. It's not really beyond the realm to call this, absolutely, it was a an atomic race, a race to, look, the Germans are going to, they're trying to do this. I know a lot, we talked in our first visit, that a lot of those German physicists came over. There were women involved, which still surprises me that in the time that we're talking about of the 20th century, that these incredibly intelligent women were, at least for a time, at the table. But there was this race to, we got to do this. And it was probably, again, like you say, if we don't do it, they sure as hell will. And and he knew that, Szilard knew that, that they would do it. Given enough time and given the resources, they could do it. So he thought, we've got to alert the American government. He had to find some way to get to President Roosevelt. And being a new immigrant to the United States, no one knew who he was. But he had a connection with Albert Einstein. He was a student of Einstein's in the university in Germany. He went to see Einstein at his summer home in on Long Island. They talked about this idea of fission and how it could be used to create a nuclear weapon. And, and what, again, give us a time frame. It was late 30s? 1939, we're talking 39 about. 39 now. Summer of 1939. So World War II, we're on the edge of World War II. Einstein uh, was finally convinced. Uh, Szilard said, I'll write the letter for you. You don't even have to do that. You just sign it, and we can get it to the president, because because you have the status. You know, everybody knows you, mm-hmm. and it'll get somewhere. It'll get, actually get to the president's desk. So he wrote the letter. Einstein signed it. They sent it to, to Roosevelt, and uh, within a couple of weeks, it had the desired effect. Roosevelt called Szilard and said, 
can you come in to the White House and let's talk about this? And Roosevelt at that point put together a commission, which was uh, a, it was a commission for advanced studies on on defense matters. And this commission started looking into what needed to be done in terms of research to perfect this weapon. And there was research being carried on in the United States because uh, with publications being worldwide, American scientists, and in particular, those scientists who came from Europe that were actually expelled from Germany uh, by the Nazi regime and, and ended up in the United States in the, in the universities had continued their research. They read the papers. They knew what had taken place, and they were, were already working on this uh, on what the consequences of this vision mm-hmm. would be. Our nuke expert, United States Navy veteran and intelligence officer, Steve Kelly. We will continue the American Veteran Show coming up next, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Welcome back to the American Veteran Show. We continue now with Stefan Tubbs. We continue the American Veteran Show, and they say timing is everything. Do you know the date where that sailor kissed the nurse in New York's Times Square? Well, it was 77 years ago today, August 14th, 1945. Of course, it would become perhaps, at least from the domestic look, it would probably be the image domestically of World War II, of course, on VJ Day. This, in a veteran spotlight, who was that soldier? You know, this was years and years before in Times Square when they celebrating the end of the war and a few drinks. I didn't know who the hell I grabbed. I knew she was the, had the uniform. Well, we had been in the Pacific for two years. Now, back in 45 now, at that time of the war, we had just taken Okinawa. That was going to take about six months to get the American army out of Europe, get them all the way out there for the invasion of Japan. So a few ships out there, like the Sullivans, we've been out there for two years. I guess they says, send them guys back to the States. So in July of 45, we got our orders to come home. My younger sister married a Navy guy here in Newport, and he was from Long Island, New York, originally. He says his parents were coming from Long Island up here to visit him. And they brought their niece with them. So I met the niece. And I said, holy Jesus, she's beautiful. So I kept in touch with the niece by phone. And now my leave was running out and the war's still on. So I said, well, I'll make reservations to fly out of New York. Went to New York the last few days of my leave and I met the niece. It was my last day in... New York, wherever in Radio City Music Hall. Why the show was going, I went watching the Rockettes the whole bit, and all of a sudden there's a hell of a commotion out on the streets. And the people out on the streets are pounding on the doors of Radio City. And in the theater, we're wondering what the hell's going on outside there. So finally they stopped the show. And they put the lights on, and they said, the Japs have surrendered, the war's over. 
Well, the people in Radio City went wild. We come down into Times Square, crash there's a million people there. So my date and I, we go into Child's Bar, and the bartender put all the glasses up on the bar, and he's pouring the booze. And whatever he poured, you drank. So we're coming down into Times Square, the war's over, and boy, I'm telling you, Times Square was wild. And I had quite a few drinks in me, and I saw the nurse. Now, let's go back five months in the war. We're still back in the Pacific. And just before we left out there, the aircraft carrier, the Bunker Hill, she got hit. She took a couple of suicide dive bombers. Some of them planes on deck started exploding and burning up. There was a hell of a fire. And we was ordered to go alongside of her. And there was a lot of men on the Bunker Hill that were trapped in the fires. Well, they started jumping off the Bunker Hill, and we picked up hundreds of them. We met the hospital ship, the Solus was the name of the hospital ship. And we're transferring the wounded onto the hospital ship. And I saw what those nurses did that day. They're these guys, and they're hurting. And it's still in the back of my head. So now back in Times Square when the war ends, and I saw the nurse. If that girl did not have a nurse's uniform on, I never would have done that. It, what I remembered out there, and that's what did it. Of course, after it was over, I went my way and the nurse went her way, thought nothing of it. And one day, this guy, Francis Sylvia, he's deceased today. But Francis Sylvia called me up one day. And he says, where the hell were you the day the war ended? And I says, I was in Times Square the moment the war ended. I says, he said, well, I know goddamn well you was. I said, how the hell do you know where I was? You're asking me where I was. He says, well, I got a Life magazine here, and there's a picture of a sailor grabbing a nurse. He says, he says I know it's you. I said, you're kidding me. He says, I know it's you. I said, well, bring the magazine over the house. And he brings the Life magazine, and I looked at it, and my first reaction, what I saw was the hand, the first thing. I said, God damn, that is me. I hadn't remembered nothing about the kiss and the excitement of Times Square a few years. And I looked at it and looked at it, and then I began to study it. And then I found my initials tattooed on my right arm. It's in the photo. And I knew it was me. I, I could see the face. I knew it was me. The veteran has since moved on. He passed away a few years ago. But they were able, several years ago, to get him and the nurse together. This from CBS in New York. It's one of the most famous pictures of the 20th century. The moment Americans learned of a Japanese surrender. It was the moment that you come back from the Pacific and finally you know the war ends. 89-year-old George Mendoza says he's that sailor in the photograph that would come to symbolize the end of World War II. And Greta Friedman, the nurse in white. I did not see him approaching, and before I know it, I was in this tight grip. How long did you kiss her? As the perfect strangers locked lips, world-famous photographer Alfred Eisenstadt snapped four pictures. Ten seconds was all it took. The excitement of the war being over, plus I had a few drinks. So when I saw the nurse, I grabbed her. 
Life kissed me. Did either of you see the picture when it was first published in Life magazine? I'm, I'm sure I saw it. So did you recognize yourself? Yes, of course. I mean, you don't forget this guy grabbing you. <laughs> no, I did not know the picture was taken. Greta was a dental assistant on break, heading to Times Square to verify rumors of the war's end. George, a first-class sailor in the Navy, was on a date with another woman. They went their separate ways, not formally meeting again until 1980, when Life magazine asked the previously unknown pair to come forward. George's friend noticed the picture in the magazine. He says, I know it's you. I said, you're crazy. This was 1980, 35 years after the war ended. The first time you saw the picture? That's correct. But they weren't the only ones claiming credit. For more than 30 years, others said they were the ones in the photo. And for just as long, George has fought to set the record straight. I started my research in 2007. He found an ally in Lawrence Varia, a Rhode Island history teacher turned author. In his 2012 book, The Kissing Sailor, Varia argues the evidence rules out everyone but the retired fisherman from Middletown, Rhode Island. It's a story about our nation, World War II. It's a story about a kiss. It's a story about a place. It's a story about a publication. But at the end, it's, it's a story about two national treasures who for 60-some years never got to do that was theirs. The best proof there is is my date. Their face is seen over the sailor's right shoulder. In fact, his date, Rita Petrie, can be seen in the background smiling from ear to ear. So the first week you're dating? Yeah, so... And he's kissing another woman. I know. But I, as I said, I don't know either. I was dopey or something, but it didn't bother me. <laughs> it must not have. She's been married to George for the last 69 years. Women still come up to George? Oh, Lord, yes. Strangers, you know, if we're at a different function or something, then they'll come up that he's a kissing sailor. So the kissing sailor is to think he's got to kiss everybody. So he does. Everybody gets his kiss. I have to admit something to you, Rita. Yeah. Very he's nice. kissing me. You, I wouldn't mind him kissing. Very nice picture. People still write to George asking for autographs and offering words of encouragement. He described a letter with us. He's state something like uh, it must be something great to be involved in a photo that means the end of World War II. Well, I'm proud of that. Again, 77 years ago today, that famous photo. Let's face it, today times have changed. That guy may have been arrested. We will wrap up the American Veteran Show looking at an icon. We remember the late David McCullough. That comes up next. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. This is the American Veteran Show, online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephan Tubbs. Welcome back as we wrap up the program today. A salute, a tribute to a true American patriot, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, David McCullough. The Civil War was fought in 10,000 places, at Big Bend, Big Sandy, and the Big Sunflower River. From Bunker Hill, West Virginia, and Blue Springs, Tennessee, and Cairo, Illinois, to Golgotha Church, Georgia, and Christianburg, Kentucky. At Citrus Point on the Cimarron River, and along Cowskin Bottom, at Pebbly Run and La Glorieta Pass, and Gettysburg. 
think if I had my choice of all the moments to be present at, at the, in that war period, it would be at Gettysburg during Lincoln's delivery of his speech. Maybe to have seen him craft those beautiful words, his marvelous healing words, and then deliver them. Uh, they were for everyone for all time. They subsumed the entire war and all in it. It showed his compassion for everyone, his love for his people. That's where I'd like to be. On November 19th, Lincoln traveled to Gettysburg to dedicate the new Union Cemetery. The featured speaker was Edward Everett of Massachusetts, a diplomat, clergyman, and celebrated orator. The president had been invited almost as an afterthought to offer a few appropriate remarks. Everett spoke for not quite two hours. Then Lincoln rose. A local photographer took his time focusing. Presumably, the president could be counted on to go on for a while. But he spoke just 269 words. He started off by reminding his audience that just 87 years had passed since the founding of the nation. And then he went on to embolden the Union cause with some of the most stirring words ever spoken. Lincoln was heading back to his seat before the photographer could open the shutter. That from Ken Burns' Civil War. David McCullough died one week ago today. He was 89. He was surrounded by his family, including his five children. McCullough died less than two months after his wife, Rosalie, passed away. He, of course, there, the voice of the Civil War. He did narratives on subjects ranging from Ken Burns' Civil War to the Brooklyn Bridge to Presidents John Adams and Harry Truman, of course, the author of those incredible biographies. If you can't tell, I was a huge fan, and it is all our loss that this amazing patriot is no longer with us. We are an optimistic people by nature. And we've always had reason to be optimistic. We also have always had reason to think we're a nation in decline. That's nothing new about that. You could go back and read the letters of Henry Adams and written in the 19th century. And the country was just going to hell. And still I, is. I grew up in a Republican <laughs> family. And the night of the 48 election, I couldn't stay awake. So next morning I got up and my father was in the bathroom shaving. And I said, Dad, Dad, who won? He said, Truman. It's like it was the end of the world. Well... 30-some years later, I was back home, and he was telling me all about how the world's going to hell and the country's going to hell, and I'd heard this so much in my life. And then he paused and he said, too bad old Harry isn't still in the White House. <laughs> and, and that's what we want, is somebody who will address the problems and, and do things that aren't popular. David McCullough's books have all come from a machine invented about the time Abe Lincoln was president. Some of you may recognize it as a typewriter. I bought it when I was embarking on my first book in the mid-early 1960s. He calls this World Headquarters, an 8-by-12-foot sanctuary in his backyard on Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Why do you use this as opposed to a computer? I can't press the wrong button and eliminate a month's work. <laughs> From his trusty royal have come books about the Johnstown Flood, the Brooklyn Bridge, the Panama Canal, 
and the Revolutionary War, and biographies of three presidents, John Adams, Teddy Roosevelt, Harry Truman. The only way to teach history, to write history, to bring people into the magic of transforming yourself into other times is through the vehicle of the story. It isn't just a chronology. It's about people. History is human. Jefferson, when in the course of human events? Human is the operative word there. And human rhymes with Truman. The unlikely victor in that presidential election McCullough slept through as a teenager. Every candidate running for any office ought to study the Harry Truman 1948 campaign. I think what's important about it, he ran by being himself. And he said, I'm going to go out there and say what I mean. Can you imagine (laughs) a politician taking that as his approach? And people loved it. The papers, the pundits, all agreed Truman didn't have a chance against Tom Dewey. Even when Truman started drawing big crowds campaigning by train. It was the first time any president had ever done that. He would pull into these little stops where nobody would ever stop and give a talk. I'm coming out here so you can look at me and hear what I have to say and then make up your own minds as to whether you believe some of the same things that have been said about your president. He wasn't smooth. He wasn't glib. He just talked straight. He said, I'm going to go out there and give him hell. And later on, he said, I didn't give him hell. I just told him the truth, and they thought it was hell. (laughs) Well, there seems to be a trend, and the trend is for Dewey. Election night. It was all over for Truman until it wasn't. The morning after that in St. Louis was handed this paper, which said... Dewey defeats Truman. Of course, he wished he had, but he didn't, and that's all there was to it. Authenticity. It worked. Authenticity. That from 60 Minutes several years ago with the late Morley Safer. He also, David McCullough did, spoke all around the country and including colleges and classrooms. Washington and Adams did not like the two-party system. They thought the two-party system or a party system, factions as they were called, would destroy the country. They had uh, they had convinced themselves and convinced many others that uh, it wouldn't work because people would begin to take the fortunes of their party more to heart than the fortunes of the country. Doesn't that sound familiar? Poetic words, prophetic words. And speaking of inside the classroom, what, Mr. McCullough, was the key to what you did for a living? You have to go to places where things happen. You have to get a feeling... For the people, it's about people. History is human when in the course of human events. And, um, and you have to smell the night air if it's taking place in the jungles of Panama or the coal fields of Pennsylvania. And you have to talk to plenty of other people about what they knew from growing up there. <clears throat> One of the very important things about having presidential libraries at the location where the president came from is that you go not only to the library, you go to the place. You go to Independence, Missouri, or Hyde Park, or out here uh, at the Kennedy Library in Boston. It's very important. And you try very hard, if you're trying to write uh, a compelling history, not to be boring. Yeah, and remember, he did it all on a typewriter. Thank you, David McCullough.
for the gifts that you gave us all. That wraps up this week's edition. We'll go out in a special way. For producer Michael Arpaio, Stefan Tubbs wishing you a safe and healthy week ahead, and remember our troops. And then there was the rough man from Illinois who would rise to be the greatest president the country has ever seen. Between 1861 and 1865, Americans made war on each other and killed each other in great numbers, if only to become the kind of country that could no longer conceive how that was possible. What began as a bitter dispute over union and states' rights ended as a struggle over the meaning of freedom in America. At Gettysburg in 1863, Abraham Lincoln said perhaps more than he knew. The war was about a new birth of freedom. Veteran Show is a copyrighted production of Mountain Time Media Group, LLC. All rights reserved. For more information, visit AmericanVeteranShow.com. Join us next week for another edition of The American Veteran Show. Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this football season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of statistics, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and an enormous selection of players and stat options are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million football fans who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com slash get100 and use code get100. That's code get100 at prizepicks.com slash get100 for a first deposit matchup to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy.